Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Francis. And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing chapters one through five of The Amber Spyglass, the third book in the His Dark Materials trilogy. In chapter one, Mrs. Coulter has become a cavewoman in her world's Himalayas. Ama, a little girl from a nearby village who brings Mrs. Coulter food, tells her that there is a rumor in the village that she is hiding a powerful being and the people are afraid. Mrs. Coulter shows her Lyra fast asleep and tells her that they are hiding from the enchanter who put her into this mystical sleep and to keep it a secret. After the girl leaves, we see that it is Mrs. Coulter who is drugging Lyra to keep her asleep in the cave and the golden monkey demon is not happy about it. In her sleep, Lyra dreams that she has found Roger, trapped in the world of the dead. In Chapter 2, the two invisible angels, Balthamos and Baruch, try to convince Will to go to Lord Azrael with the subtle knife, just as his recently deceased father had wanted him to do. However, Will wants to find Lyra first, and then go to Azrael. His fingers are finally healed from his father's ointment, Baruch goes in search of Lyra. Meanwhile, Will pilfers the tent of also recently deceased Lord Boreal, interrogates a very grumpy Balthamos about metaphysics and experiments cutting into many different worlds with the knife. Soon after Baruch returns with information about Mrs. Coulter and Lyra, they are attacked by another angel. Will kills the angel with the knife and cuts a window for them to flee through, just as Metatron arrives and almost kills them with his spear. Once safely away in another world, Balthamos explains that Metatron is the regent of the authority, aka God, the creator, the lord, etc. But these are all names he gave himself, and he is not truly the creator. He was the first and most powerful angel, who condensed out of dust, and he lied to all the other angels, telling him that he created them. Balthamos and Baruch serve another female angel. Will asks, what happens when people die? And the angels tell him that there is a world of the dead, but they know very little about it. They also reveal that they have a very important secret to tell Lord Asriel, and they want to bring Will and the knife as a way to get his attention. Will throws a fit about them forgetting about Lyra and convinces Baruch to go to Lord Asriel for help, while he and Balthamos keep trying to rescue her. In her dreams, Lyra promises Roger that Will is on his way to help them. In Chapter 3, Serafina Pecola is mad at Mrs. Coulter and sad about climate change. She finds Yorick struggling to kill a walrus in the sea because all of the ice has melted. She tells him that Lee Scoresby is dead and where to find his magically preserved body. 
All will scavenger foxes watch and listen. She leaves to go find the Egyptians, and Yorick swims into Chittagatsa's world. He finds Lee's body and eats it, his first meal in days. Yorick decides to travel south, where Lee had told him that there are mountains so tall that the ice on them never melts. One of the foxes gets captured by a cliff ghast and babbles the contents of the conversation between Serafina and Yorick before it is eaten. Roger asks where Mrs. Coulter is, and says the only good thing about being dead is that she's not. Lyra says she's dreaming and thinks Mrs. Coulter may be nearby, but doesn't know for sure. In Chapter 4, the village girl Alma grows enamored of Mrs. Coulter and becomes obsessed with the spell keeping Lyra asleep. She goes to visit a great healer and asks for medicine to heal her cousin with a sleeping sickness. The next day, Alma arrives at the cave with food and the medicine while Mrs. Coulter is away. She is in the cave looking at Lyra when Mrs. Coulter returns and has to conceal herself in the back. From her hiding place, she sees Lyra begin to wake up and try to fight Mrs. Coulter, who drugs her back to sleep and then cuts off a lock of her hair. Alma waits for Mrs. Coulter and the sadistic golden monkey to fall asleep before she escapes from the cave and pledges to try to use the medicine to save Lyra. Lyra and Roger try to hug each other, but their arms pass through empty air. Lyra tells Roger that she's trying to wake up. Roger tells Lyra he's afraid that when she wakes up, she'll think their conversation was only a dream. In Chapter 5, Lord Asriel prepares for war in a mountain fortress. His spymaster, Lord Roke, is a Galavespian. Lord Roke reports that different factions of the Magisterium have different theories about Lyra. One thinks that she is the most important child who has ever lived. Another is interviewing everyone that they can find with knowledge about her. An officer arrives and tells Asriel that a wounded angel wishes to speak with him. Baruch reveals their two very important secrets. First, the authority has retired and no longer runs the daily affairs of the kingdom. The angel Metatron now runs everything as his regent. The authority considers that conscious beings have become dangerously independent. So Metatron is going to intervene much more actively in human affairs. They think the churches in every world are corrupt and weak. They intend to create an engine of war and set up a permanent inquisition in every world, run directly from the kingdom. Second, the subtle knife exists, and only Will can wield it. Will refuses to come to Azrael until he finds Lyra, and Lyra is stuck in a cave in the Himalayas. While trying to describe Lyra's exact location, Baruch loses his strength and particles disperse into nothingness as he calls out for Balthamos. Lord Asriel sets his war machine into motion and bids his alethiometrist to pinpoint the location of the cave. Lyra looks around and sees that Roger's expression is different from all the others in the world of the dead. Everyone else looks miserable and full of sorrow, while Roger has hope. She asks him why. Yeah, so overall feelings, what did you guys think? My general feelings about the start of The Amber Spyglass will always be sort of clouded by the first time I read it. By which I mean, like, I just wanted to get to the story. All of this feels like setup. Mm -hmm. And there's too much with Ama. Who cares about her? Like, she's not important to the yeah. story. She's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, some individual things are really good. Like, I love seeing Yorick again. And I actually really enjoy the creepy glimpses of Lyra and Roger. And that, you know, he found a way to work Lyra into this so that the beginning of the story with her unconscious wasn't also, like, devoid of her. But just speed it along. Like, let's get into it already. 
I like the Ama stuff because we get to see Mrs. Coulter kind of from an outside perspective. And I feel like that makes her seem creepier in a way. But I do totally get what you're saying now that like it feels a lot like moving chess pieces around. Yeah. You're basically watching Pullman problem solve of like, we ended book two here and this is where I want to get for book three. And now we have to actually traverse. It's like the the literary version of all of the walking that they had to do in book two. Yeah, I guess overall, I actually liked it. I thought it was kind of a a strong start. We got reintroduced to almost all of the important characters, except for Mary. And they're kind of busy being the most extreme version of themselves. Like, Mrs. Coulter is that, like, weird, um, kind of contradictory mix of creepy and maternal. The golden monkey is, like, horribly sadistic. Will is, like, strong-willed. Um, I like the angels. Lord Azrael is off being pompous and self-important and trying to rule the world. The, the one thing that I could not get out of my head, though, is that um, it's really hard for me not to call Balthamos Balthazar, who's that, like, horrible hot tub demon from Buffy. So, if I misspeak at any point, I apologize in advance. He is also one of the three wise men. Balthazar is, not Balthamos. Yeah, yeah Balthazar. Yeah. Balthazar. Okay. The, uh, Whatever. Balthazar. Do yeah. I seem like someone who's actually read the Bible? No, he's not in the Bible. Uh, oh. Yeah. Yeah, in the kind of corollary information. Right. Oh, I see. The wise men are yeah. in the Bible. But they give Jesus three gifts, and therefore Christians later extrapolated, well, there must be three of them. It, do, it never says anything about <sighs> the wise true. men. They're just wise men. And then it doesn't say how many. It doesn't say from where. Uh, I feel like my, my take on this is bad now uh, because of Caitlin. So thanks. Um, Welcome. Yeah. So I felt like when I read this, two or three times. I think I've read this like three or four times now. And every time I feel like this is kind of downhill for me. Uh, like a, everything is moving really nicely. The chapters aren't too long. We get to check in with everybody and I'm interested in everything that's happening. So, but I do understand what you're saying about Ama and stuff. I guess what I like about it is how there's like a lot of familiar structures happening, but like in new ways. And so Alma is kind of a repetition of things that we've already been through with Mrs. Coulter and Lord Asriel of like a child is kidnapped and taken to a mountain and must be rescued. You know, like structurally it's the same will asserting himself and meeting some new angels. I really like how the angels kind of reflect his attitude. I'll talk more about that later. I like how Yurik is like one with the land and doesn't know what to do because the land is changing. And so like all the, I don't know, like all this stuff was just pretty downhill for me and really easy to read and get back into the world. So I liked it. Again, I like a lot of the individual stuff that happens. I just find overall this first section goes on too long. Like I just want to get into the meat of the story. Like nothing's really happening right now. For me, it's like watching someone set up a board, 
halfway through play that they've already kind of noted down. They're just setting it back up so you can play again. Mm. So I, I think it's, you know, it serves a purpose. I do think it's not a bad start by any stretch of the imagination. I've definitely read many worse sequel beginnings. Um, and you kind of rem- it's functional. It reminds us where we are, brings us back in, tells us, oh, yeah, remember, Lee's dead and Yorick is now going to go and find him and then eat him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like, that's that's fine. I think that's a good that's a clever way of reminding us kind of what happened last episode so i I liked it uh favorite parts on that note i really loved the gay angels and i'm so surprised (laughs) and also just like the way that they and will snark at each other the whole time um and of course mrs coulter being the most Mrs. Coulter that she has ever been. It's, I think especially now that I just imagine Ruth Wilson, mm-hmm. you know, it like, it makes it even more uh, delightful. I'm completely in agreement with that. I love the Gangels. I, I really enjoyed like Mrs. Coulter's fall from evil, if you will. It's, it's, it's a little bit, jarring at times but overall i quite like seeing her become a more conflicted character also just as a side note i really like the wide old the like wise old man seeing through the little girl's story yeah so next time tell me the truth <laughs> right i know what you i know what you're saying like don't fuck me around she's no silver tongue no precisely i would i actually wanted to see more of him as well like i think he would have been an interesting extra character I do feel like with this whole village and Alma and the medicine man dude, like there's interesting stuff happening there, but we, it just isn't important in any way to the story. And so it always upsets me how long we stay with them. (laughs) Yeah. I do like how they are actual people and characters and not, uh, I think the attention that's given to them, mitigates like any kind of like we were talking about shamanism in the previous book and how it was kind of problematic like i don't feel any of that here because they feel like real people who like are a part of their culture and all that stuff so like i i agree that we spend a lot of time with characters who don't have a big impact on the whole book but maybe that time kind of mitigates it being problematic in ways that it could otherwise be Hmm. maybe my favorite thing here is also the angels because I really like the way that uh, Balthamus, <laughs> I'm not going to say Balthazar, god damn it. Um, <laughs> yes, I've infected all of you. Yeah. Why would you do this to us? <laughs> <laughs> I like how he like is not interested in Will's stuff and is it seems barely interested in Azrael's stuff, to be honest. He just wants Baruch back. That's all he cares about. All he cares about is like getting back with his man and um, Will does not give a shit about this whole Asriel versus God fight and the fate of the universe. Like, where is Lyra? Where is my best friend who I just confessed to her demon, how much I care about her and everything inside of me. Uh, And so like, I just love the way that those two characters both have like no urgency for the plot. And only like, yeah, care about the people that they care about. I actually think this says a lot about like the morality and the ethics of his dark materials, like kind of like what Lee said 
in the previous book, you do good where you find to do good, you know, like you don't worry about like the big picture necessarily. We might be annoyed with the angel to be like, come on, go help find Lyra. But really he's doing the same thing that Will is doing. So it's just good writing, I think. You've really sort of hit on like my favorite thing about the entire book. Oh. Will and Lyra are just like, no, we're going to do what we want to do. Fuck the plot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my favorite bits, though, are the Lyra and Roger bits, which I see somebody else has put them as their least favorite bits. So I think that's great. I, but uh, this might be because I listened to the audiobook and they are done so well in the audiobook, the way that they have the like creepy wind in the background to make them kind of echoey and weird. And that these bits with Lyra are setting up what's actually going to happen in this book more so than any of the other shit that's happening right now. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from like Will's metaphysical conversation with the angels that's and him like testing out the knife, like that's all important. But everything else is not that important. Whenever I read this book, the first time those Lyra interspersion things come in especially because they cut off halfway through yeah i always think that i'm missing a page that my ebook's corrupted it just really annoys me <laughs> i can see how it would be wonderful in an audiobook but that's mm. not the book that right. is the production of the audiobook which i sounds amazing but the first time i read the book when i got to the end of the lyra and roger parts i went back and read them all together yeah it's like one scene right yeah yeah i kind of split up yeah Okay, see, that's kind of, I feel like I'm pretty much halfway in between you guys. As I was sitting down and trying to figure out my favorite and least favorite parts, I honestly considered putting the Will and Lyra stuff as both my favorite and my least favorite. I like couldn't decide because I remember the first time I read this book, I hated them. Like it just did not work for me. But this time through... I actually really liked it and I, I felt like it did work, but I don't know. Like, I feel like if something really doesn't work for first time readers, then like, does it work at all? Like if, if it only makes sense on repeated reading, I don't know, unless you've read the book very recently or know it very well, I think it would just work better as its own chapter as opposed to split up i mean i guess i think maybe what pullman was trying to do is make it seem kind of confusing dreamlike otherworldly but it's just so hard to keep track of what's happening if you don't already know what's going on i don't, know. I don't remember having a problem with them the first time i read it it's hard for me to be mad about it though because i do feel like it's so different than anything Pullman has done before in the series. So part of me wants to just like applaud it for being ballsy and like, you know, attempting an art. Right. Um, I think I'm the only one left. Mine is very serious and not a joke. You know, Will like kills an angel defending themselves. Who's like calling down Metatron. And he asks, like, did I kill it? And, and the other angels are like, oh yeah, that, that dude's dead. And he's like, I hate this. I hate killing, uh, which is like a very important thing for Will. But, you know, like it shows what a child he is and how privileged children are nowadays. Or like, you know, I used to get up at 4 a.m. when I was a child and walk uphill both ways 
Well, and, and kill I'd a have person. to kill like two or three people before I got to work at the factory. <laughs> oh my god! And I didn't Luxury. complain about it. You know, uh, I just did what I had to do to make this empire work. And this kid just all he does is whine about murder. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. To be honest, like I didn't have any problems with this. These five chapters, I think they're really well executed and. Uh, I just liked all of it, so I had, I had to write such something. like a response to your note here that I was going to talk about, and now that I know you were joking about it, I'm just like, oh, okay. <laughs> I guess it doesn't <laughs> matter that I had a counter argument and some points, <laughs> and Sorry. how you were very obviously wrong. I God, agree. I hate humor. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I've kind of already ranted about it. But my least favorite bit is just this whole. This whole section, this whole setup, <laughs> all of it, this whole, the first like <laughs> quarter of the book, I'm like, ugh, come on, let's move on. Let's get to Will and Lyra. This book is very long. I'm not, I didn't look at the page counts, but I think it is longer than the other two books. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it does have a lot of like arcs to it. That Actually, I really like this book feels like way more epic than the other two in, in certain ways. Yeah. Um, also, I don't know if we really get into this here or if it's a little bit later, but Mrs. Coulter, she suddenly cares more about being a mother over any of her ambitions. And I'm just like, eh, like not a great mother. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> at least she's still an evil mother. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. There are things that I really love about Mrs. Coulter's journey in this book, and there are things that I really... I'm like, why, why, why? I feel like she's still very ambitious, just differently ambitious. It just feels different because she's no longer fighting for power within an institution. She's trying to like outmaneuver an institution. And she's still, I mean, she's still trying to outmaneuver but Lord she's, Asriel. She's not doing a good job. Like I she's see. She I'm like, she knows everybody has alethiometer readers and that they can just be like, where's Lyra? And then right. come right for her in this cave. Like, she's lying to herself, which is not, I mean, we've seen her lie to a lot of people and manipulate a lot of people and now she's doing it to herself. And I think that is not a great character arc for her. And then, I, I'm not going to lie, there's other stuff that happens later that is affecting my thoughts on, like, seeing the beginning of it here. Now it looks like someone has a question for me. Uh, yeah, what the fuck is a Kendall mint cake? I could not tell based on this text. So a Kendall mint cake is a sort of traditional hiking food, if you will. Wait, it's essentially hiking? Hiking. Oh, hiking. Like walking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sorry. <laughs> yeah. We got I, that? For, I heard a P for some reason. I was like, is this some... British hobby that I've never heard of. You know, everyone goes no, hiking on the weekends. I I can't even pause that. Um, <laughs> I so Kendall mint cake is essentially take sugar, compact it into a bar so it stays together. Flavor it with mint essence. That's it. So, so it's, it's essentially just, just sugar. It's just a way to make sugar edible without having you feel like you're eating just raw sugar with a spoon yes it's it's convenient it's very easy to pack it's very easy to kind of carry with you it lasts for ages as long as you don't let the ants in 
Is it um, good? It's amazing because it's sugar and mint. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like eating a stick of rock, but less teeth breaking and more just the most convenient way to get as much energy into you as possible really this, quickly. This sounds like kind of old to me. Like, uh, yeah. does this come after like World War II austerity? I, yeah, is things? this trench food? Um, give me a second. I will have a look. I think it's pretty old. Uh, 1918. Oh, yeah, yeah, see, trench wow. food. Yeah. A bit post-trench, really. Okay. Post-trench. Post-trench. Yes, <laughs> um, but the actual... the actual um, min it, it is a bit earlier than that. So um, one of they, they marketed it as like an energy like snack. Sure. And it was used uh, by uh, Ernest Shackleton, which was oh, okay. one of the reasons yeah. why. Um, why it became so big on in the kind of explorer community. So it, it is Arctic actually a bit explorer older. Guy. Right. Yes, he he led the Imperial Transarctic Expedition. Sorry, Transantarctic Expedition. Oh, great! Other I was I was just going to ask if I should know who this person is. So thank you for telling me. He is pretty <laughs> famous. Oh, that actually <laughs> makes it way better too. that Lord Boreal was basically like cosplaying yes. as Shackleton. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I'm an explorer. This does help though, because like I was picturing, I was like, like a some little kind of Debbie snack or cake or yeah, something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh no. And so I, no, I go Google it and have a look at it. I was definitely pictured it like dipped in chocolate. Yeah, me too. The, like it can come like wrapped in chocolate, mm. but the traditional one is very much like a tablet almost. Yeah, because this is like the archaic use of the word cake, like a cake of soap or something like you exactly. know. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. I also just want to clarify that when I say it totally makes sense that Lord Boreal is cosplaying a Shackleton, I specifically <laughs> mean Book Boreal, who's like an old yes. white dude, like old money. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, it makes it doesn't really work with the TV show Boreal that we got. To be fair, they will probably cut out this conversation about mint cakes. Yeah, I wonder if they will do this. There's a note about that. Do you want to just get into that? We're talking about the metaphysics of the Kendall mint cake. Oh, okay. yes. Like, how can an incorporeal being eat? He, the angel, Balthasome, Balthamos. Wow. Um, <laughs> Jesus. He Seriously? Does... Can we get a new host? <laughs> <laughs> On the... <laughs> he says something like, I think this will nourish me, which I did find very weird. I feel like I would have enjoyed it better if he was like, oh, yes, this does not nourish me. It just tastes good and I like it. Mm. Yeah, I would have liked that more. And, and it, it does, it genuinely does bring up the question of, firstly, how can they eat? Do they have a functional stomach? Considering that the human's big thing over all the angels is that they have flesh. Mm -hmm. Does an angel have a digestive system? Does an angel metabolize? Does it need to? Yeah, I mean, angels are matter. It's very clear about that. But I guess they're just a different pretty type of matter. Yeah, because he does change mm. his body and stuff to turn into animals. That's what Will is like, hey, can you do this thing that I need you to do when I go to Lyra's world so that people don't think I'm a weird zombie person? And he's like, yeah, I could do that if I wanted to. But why the fuck would I want to? And <laughs> so he can have a body. But yeah, but who knows if that body needs energy and nourishment the same way? I don't think so. It doesn't seem like it. One thing I do really like about all this 
is that Philip Pullman is really, really hand-wavy about the world building here. Like, yeah. we don't know the answer to any of these questions. Like, mm -hmm. why can't he turn into a bird? Why does he eat the cake? Why? Why? Why is any of this happening? But also, it doesn't really matter, so it doesn't bother me. But usually, shitty world building like this bothers the crap out of me. <laughs> but this doesn't bother me. I don't know. It's not that it's shitty. Like, you, you definitely hit the nail on the head. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But to a pedant, it all matters. So I'm sitting here going, but how the fuck does that work? Yeah. <laughs> we'll get into more of that in a bit. <laughs> uh, speaking of how does that work, I feel like this could be our final Dust Watch segment because we pretty much just get the answer here. No, we don't. We okay. get what someone thinks is the <laughs> Wow. 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 <laughs> At least we get an answer. Yes. Okay. So the book says... <laughs> Dust is only a name for what happens when matter begins to understand itself. Matter loves matter. It seeks to know more about itself, and dust is formed. The first angels condensed out of dust, and the authority was the first of all. All right, so then who's who's working the alethiometer? Right. Okay. Who's answering uh, those questions? Dust? Dust? <laughs> but, like, it has a personality. It has opinions. Fuck it, you, dust. It literally is like sometimes <laughs> you should be doing this and not this. Like, why? Who to are fair, you? I I would have preferred it if it was wrong sometimes, and it just turns out the alethiometer is in fact dust corporeal and actually just has opinions. It's just yeah. an angel. And it's just like, no, I think you should do this, mate. Like, it, do it. What do you mean? Like, it's any angel who gets on the on the bandwidth for a second? It'd be like, oh, there's a alethiometer question. <laughs> Hang on, I'm going to answer this. <laughs> My turn. The alethiometer is just like Quora. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or Yahoo Answers. It's, no, it's it's like Stack Exchange and Stack Overflow, where it's like, now nah, this is yeah. this is similar to the question you asked before. Closed. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Please do a better search. But like, literally though, what? Who's answering? Why? How do they know everything? Because if it is an angel, like we see that the angels don't know everything, because Balthamos and his other dude baruch had to like sneak in and find out information from metatron and stuff what does know everything who is answering this do you know of the idea of the spinozan concept of god if you're asking me personally please always like if you're asking do you know about this religious thing the answer is always <laughs> no it's always no. <laughs> the the, uh, the Spinozan idea of God, correct me if I'm wrong, Alan, because you'll know this way better than me, is essentially God from nature, i.e. inanimate, if you will, or unspecified God, which is represented by all of the complex workings of nature. Mm -hmm. And then you can consider that to be a sort of God. Now, my point here is that if you're asking who's answering, well, I would contend God is answering in this book, and God is just nature. Yeah. No, yes, so I would also, that is my feelings also. I'm just posing the question so that we think about it. I actually do think it is dust that is answering. I just think that everybody yeah. who gives an answer about what is dust um, within the story is either doesn't have all the information or is wrong. And right. I can't decide if Pullman did that on purpose or, or if, if it was just know. bad writing. Right, yeah. <laughs> yes. So the authority is not actual God, but dust is actual God. Well, I don't, no, I don't agree with that. Mm. Um, Depends on how you define God. You're right. Yes. I don't think, I don't think dust made anything 
that's not what I mean. And the, so the way that Francis frames it is really good for me. Spinoza's idea of God doesn't have a personality or a mind. Mm -hmm. It's not a person. It's Mm -hmm. like the laws of nature, right? It's like, yeah, it's like consequence and necessity. So like as scientists in, in investigating what is natural and, you know, like how chemistry works, you are studying the ways of God for Spinoza, literally, like literally. Yeah. That was yeah. his whole idea. And so also, 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 sorry, I just something I just found out. <laughs> guess, guess Spinoza's first name. Baruch. This is why I'm going to talk about it. Oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> no, it's Baruch. I, I, it just yeah, makes so me think, think of uh, Jewish blessings. They all start with Baruch Adonai. That's right. Yeah. So I think what's part of what's happening, maybe. Because like Caitlin says, we don't, I don't even think Pullman could answer this question with a straight face is like dust has a nature the same way that like electrons have a nature because they're like particles, right? And somehow the alethiometer taps into that the same way that like a battery taps into how electron fields work and it manipulates them in some way to like extract information just based on like what they are. Back to dust when Mary was talking to the angels on her computer. They basically said, yes, dark matter is dust, and that's what we are. But are they telling the truth? Exactly. That's what I'm saying, though, because because mm, Anya was yeah. like, now we have our answer. I'm like, well, we've gotten an answer before. And yeah. we continue to get answers, and they don't, they don't all match up. In a way, I do like thinking of dust as God, because it is like, it is everywhere all at once. Yeah. It is all-knowing. It is also not a single entity in the way that, like, humans project onto God. Like Zeus or something, yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or even, like, the traditional Christian God. Like, it's not, that's not what we mean when we say dust is God. It's like humans have been misunderstanding the essence of what God is in kind of a fundamental way, but also understanding other parts of it correctly anyway yeah yeah except so for like, spinoza who yeah totally exactly got it. yeah so, except for spinoza. do do everything you just said but say it in the 1600s and see how that goes uh, oh wait shit oh, i'm so excited did this universe have spinoza probably in some back corner you know ancillary office what someone the came up with it and they were like put it in a book <laughs> and said you're fired you know yeah true yeah <laughs> galileo'd him ish yeah. Well, that's what, not, I mean, I feel like we're trying to move on. But one of the things that I really like about this idea of dust as God is that it's not, it doesn't care. Yes. Yeah. You know, it yeah, doesn't exactly. want to be worshipped. It doesn't care what happens. It doesn't care. It's just a, a particle, like you said. Right. And that was Spinoza's whole thing. Like the material universe is enough. That is what God is. And it's incredible. And we don't need more than that. And as like a pedantic, you must follow these 10 rules kind of a way, or I will punish you. You know, we just do what is natural. So, Including murdering people on your way to work. You know, you got to make money. Is, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Some, not everybody can live. I'm sorry. That's Capitalism is definitely natural. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the other side of the Spinozan coin because he kicks that stuff off and eventually everybody buys into it and they're like, yes, you're right. We should do what's natural. And what is natural is being straight and white and Christian 
And it was like, oh, hang on a second. Wait a minute. And <laughs> European. And it was like, whoa, 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 whoa. If you're relying on moral objectivism, you kind of immediately hit that problem. Problematics. Oh, yes. Yeah. So for problematics, um, nobody else had anything. I just put in, this was kind of small, I guess. It's really stereotypical in fantasy and sci-fi, though, to have like an entire race of people who all have one trait. Mm. And Galavespians are all too proud to actually be spies if they weren't so small. And I'm like, I'm sure not everybody is like, it's an entire people, mm-hmm. an yeah. entire yeah. world of people. I'm sure they're not all proud little bitches. Like, <laughs> and it would be worse if they were of a particular colored skin, but they are oh, not. God, so yeah. they are a particular size, but I guess they're like. That's true. That I mean, that's definitely less horrible than it would be if it were a skin color thing, but it's not completely unproblematic. Yeah, they all have a Napoleon complex, basically. I wonder, there's probably no answer to this. I wonder about the feasibility of their biology. Uh, Not that I'm like hung up on it. You know, I can't believe in this book anymore. You know, like, not like, but I do wonder, like, do you think it's possible to have a person who's like, Eight inches tall, six, whatever, however big they are. Not whilst being clever. No, no, yeah, right. Like, yeah, we I need mean, our yeah, brain, right? There are monkeys that size, right? So, like, mm-hmm. primary. That's even a bit small for monkey. Like, there are, but they're not. Uh, very few of them that are adult are the size of a hand span. It's not implausible in the way where it's like a giant ant the size of the house that like would absolutely just like be unable to oxygenate its organs and or like support its own body weight on its legs yeah that's what i'm asking yeah oh yeah no in terms of physical makeup it's possibly a little small to work in that way it would breathe really quickly um it would probably be very easy for it to break its legs but probably fine um, which I guess is speaking a good, of science. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Perfect segue. Uh, I'm going to be that pedantic biologist and say that Pullman fucked up the difference between poisonous and venomous. Venom is something that is injected, versus poison is something that like is ingested. So like snakes are venomous. Plants um, that make you sick if you eat them are like monarch butterflies or like other insects that will make birds sick if they eat them. Like those are poisonous. But the other thing to the other question was I could never work out if the spurs on their heels are a weapon or if they are part of their biology. I agree that it's confusing and I think that Pullman wants it to be a part of their biology. But oh. I think it makes a lot more sense if they are weapons. Yeah, I'd always imagined it being their boots. Mm, that's what I thought as well. Interesting. I always thought that it was like a part of their body and I didn't like it. I so much thought that it was a part of their boots that this is the first time I've ever thought like somebody else bringing it up is the first time I've ever thought, oh, I guess I guess it Same. isn't explicitly said. The other science thing I wanted to touch on quickly was they talk uh, in one section about phosphor-titanium alloys that have never before been seen. And I just thought that was just interesting to look at briefly. So I took a little look around and 
There aren't really many, but you can use phos- incorporate phosphor within the titanium oxide coating, which it forms in the presence of oxygen, uh, which increases its corrosion resistance and might make them slightly sharper. But basically, it's not really a thing. Well, it is a thing, but not. it's nowhere near as impactful as the discovery of titanium as a useful material. All of that was nonsense to me. <laughs> That's it may like, have been nonsense to everyone is the issue. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the foundry Lord Asriel has where they're making weapons. Is that where they're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I'm not sure if if you could find a way to combine titanium and phosphorus on a large scale, i.e. on a fully integrated throughout the whole material scale, whether that might be a ceramic sort mm. of thing rather than necessarily it's definitely not it can't really be an alloy so it sounds like maybe pullman read something interesting and then just decided to go to fly with it i think pullman just made it up off the spot oh okay <laughs> in all honesty <laughs> this sounds this sounds advanced this sounds dangerous yeah. i believe you because i don't know very <laughs> much about it so speaking of belief <laughs> religion Come on, that was a damn good segue. That was. That was so good. I mean, yeah, they've all been <laughs> pretty good. Hmm. <laughs> okay, the last two. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'll just say something really quickly that on this read through, I've been thinking the fact that when I first read these books as a literal child, the idea that they were an atheist text kind of went over my head and then like confused me when I heard about that. Like the fact that the supernatural and God or, you know, quote unquote God, whatever exists in these texts, it's just really fucked up. That didn't strike me as atheist because I was just thinking about atheism as like, God does not exist rather than criticism of religion itself. More of like an epistemological position rather than a moral position and i feel like these books are really kind of like anti-christian or anti-organized religion from a moral position i mean i guess i i understand why religious people were offended by this book and tried to boycott it get it banned from libraries did that happen am i making that up i don't know no no it definitely happened (laughs) But it just, to me, it just seems like not that offensive. I don't know. Maybe I'm not a conservative religious person, so it's I can't put that myself in that perspective. But to me, it seems like encouraging people to think critically about religion and the morality of religion, how to make religion better rather than just tearing down religion altogether. I suspect a lot of religions would like that less. I mean, yeah, I guess. Like encouraging people to think critically. It's a dangerous game. Did it not seem atheist to you because it has, when you were a kid, I mean, it did like it flew over your head because it had like literal angels in it and stuff like that and like ghosts and specters. Yeah, and like an afterlife and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, all of that stuff. It just like didn't strike me as atheist because... Yeah, like all of the things that we consider hallmarks of like the religious supernatural perspective are the literal truth in this universe. Yeah, they're like real. universes. 
Right. As opposed to like if Will and Lyra were going through different universes and like showing everyone, see, the wings are glued on. Like they're just people. (laughs) Then it was like that would be more of an atheist parable about like this. None of this is real. Like the Wizard of Oz or something, you know. The way I see it, it's more of a stark look at the way that Abrahamic religion in particular is damn weird. That You know, even believing exactly in the text, there's so many unknowns that, you know, you really don't know if you're making the right assumptions. You're just assuming that God's nice. You're just assuming that he- that heaven is in fact what you think it is, because there's not really much that says you're just taking some guy's word for it. So this just sort of takes all that and goes, well, let's just have a little look at this. <laughs> I mean, it's not even just assuming that God's nice. It's like... It's in your interest to at least pretend that God's nice, because otherwise he'll smite you. I was going to say, despite the fact that there is plenty of writings, particularly in the Old Testament, saying God is not very nice. Yeah. <laughs> despite the fact that there's plenty of evidence in front of our faces that if God is real, he's a bit of a shit. <laughs> or he has no power. Yeah, so actually the stuff that we've been talking about goes nicely into like kind of what Gnosticism ended up uh, being about in the early uh, Christian history. Now, I know from reading Philip Pullman's other book about writing called Demon Voices that um, he talks about writing his dark materials, and he says that he had never read any Gnostic material before he wrote The Amber Spyglass. Like, he had already started on The Amber Spyglass, and then he read the Gnostic myths And so, like, it's interesting to me the degree to which his project is, like, a response to C.S. Lewis's work and the way that Gnosticism is responding to early Jewish Christianity and how parallel those things end up being unintentionally. In other words, like, Pullman did not construct his universe knowing Gnosticism ahead of time and kind of, like, follow what they did. They just end up being kind of close because they are coming from the same direction, if that makes sense, at the same kind of ideas. That sounds really fascinating, but I don't think I quite understand it, just because like, I think you need to explain more. Yeah, let me uh, take 45 minutes to elaborate. So um, (laughs) (laughs) to lay the groundwork for what's going on with Gnosticism here, and I've already talked about the Gnostic myth a little bit, but I want to get a little bit more into the weeds because there's some stuff that happens in these five chapters that kind of like jumps out. Christians who were pretty much all Jewish at the time believed that because Jesus died, the world is ruined. Everything is bad because there's lots of prophecies in what Christians call the Old Testament or what Jewish people, you know, call the Bible about the Messiah coming. And for these followers, Jesus was the Messiah and the world rejected him and killed him. So now it's, there's no chance of redemption anymore. The world is ruined. So like this belief remains in Christianity to this day, but is re-expressed in different ways through different movements and different denominations all the time. But it always comes from like a pessimistic viewpoint of the rest of the world. And it and it comes from like the feeling something's wrong. The world is messed up and bad. For example, what we've talked about before in Original Sin they come up with the idea of original sin. Well, everything is ruined because Adam and Eve, it was ruined then. 
like there's lots of different expressions of what this thing is. It's not just original sin. That's the Catholic thing. When it starts out as Jews, so these Gentiles come in, that's what they're called if they're not Jews, and they come up with their own formulation of the same idea that the world is ruined. Why is the world ruined? Well, because the Jews killed Jesus. They couldn't handle that he was the Messiah. They couldn't understand what he was here to do, and they killed their own Savior. But we, the not-Jews, get it. And so that's how they see things. So are you saying that Christianity is a fatalistic doomsday cult? I mean, it used to be, before before it got into being an empire, um, yeah. before the rich people got involved. And that is where Coptic Christians come in. Uh, now, these are Christians who live in Egypt, especially around Alexandria. Uh, Coptic is not like a people group. It's just... Uh, they, like all these people speak Egyptian, but they don't write in the Egyptian alphabet of hieroglyphics. They write in Greek with Greek letters, but they're spelling out Egyptian words. But the greatest minds of the Mediterranean are all concentrated in Alexandria. And there's Christians there. So you had texts there that were like Plato, Aristotle, but you also had stuff that was from the Hebrew scholars that are called uh, Agadah. So this is like stuff like the Midrash or the Talmud. These are writings that are like not the Bible, but Bible adjacent. These Christians in Alexandria have the context of the extra Jewish material, but their viewpoint, remember, is that the Jews killed Jesus and ruined the world. So the Jews must be wrong about all of this stuff. Like, all of this is incorrect. Like, they didn't understand who God really was. And out of that idea, and also out of the writings of Plato, who came up with Plato's cave that we talked about, what if there was only one God, Plato says, and that God was like a craftsman, and he made the universe the way that you make a piece of pottery or something, right? What would that God be like? And these Christians take that idea and they say, oh, this platonic maker God, that is the Jewish God who made the world, and that Jewish God is evil. And that's why the Jews were confused about all of this, because they were worshiping an evil God. But the real God is like higher up than him. And he exists as a, like a totality of consciousness only. He, he is just an idea that is self-caused. So the Gnostics, we talked about the Adam and Eve myth that the Gnostics come up with, right? That the serpent is actually Jesus who comes and tells us, hey, this God is evil and he is trying to trick you because you are a little piece of God and consciousness and light who has been stuck in this material universe. And I'm going to try and get you out. And the way that you do that is by learning knowledge and secrets. And when you die, you'll leave your material body behind and you'll escape this universe of this evil God. And this is the reason why in the Jewish Bible, 
the God says, have no other gods but me. I am a jealous God. I will smite everybody who doesn't follow me because he's like, um, he's insecure and jealous and angry because he's not the real God and he knows it. In the same way as what we hear about the authority, that he's not the creator of the universe. He wasn't like that. He kind of emanated from the dust. He didn't create the other angels. So like, he's not God. That's the same thing as this version of the Jewish God that the Gnostics are positing is like a one-to-one parallel in Pullman's world. That's so fascinating that he basically reinvented Gnosticism Mm-hmm. in this like literary setting without knowing it. So does Gnosticism still exist as like an active religion or like branch of Christianity today? Or is it mostly a historical? For a long time, all we knew about Gnosticism was that it was a heresy. Here is what Gnostics believe and why they are wrong. And that's all we knew about Gnosticism was like the claims of their enemies. And then in the 1970s, uh, some documents were found at a place called Nag Hammadi that are alternative books of the Bible from other perspectives. There's like the book of Mary, the book of uh, Judas, the book of Thomas. And in the, the gospel of Judas, you find out that the reason Judas betrays Jesus is because it was the plan all along. And he didn't betray Jesus. He did what Jesus wanted. And the other apostles didn't understand that this was the plan. I see. So like God is just a mind out there. And it again, like in the Spinozan way, it doesn't have like a personality or anything. It's not like a a person. It's just like thinking thoughts. But since it's like this all powerful, like whatever it is, its thoughts become people. So like it thinks about like, what is truth? My my cosmic brain. And then like truth manifests and I am truth. And then like, I'll tell you about truth. It's like what I know about in the same way of like maybe Greek gods of like, I am the ocean and I am this, you know, the skies or whatever. The last one of these to be formed in the mind of God is wisdom. And this is the mother. Wisdom is the mother of what is called in the myth, Ealdeboath, who is like Yahweh, you know, the God of Abraham, the God of on and on and on and on, the Jewish God. But it does come, like I said, from these Agadah, that there were older writings there about like the time when the Jewish people worshipped a female God, and where they had more than just like we think of the Jews and the Hebrews as being monotheistic, but that is like a revision that happens in 600 BC when the Babylonians wipe out the kingdom uh, and pretty much end it because they, I mean, they come back, but it's not really the full nation that it was before that. And the prophet Jeremiah like chalks this up to, well, we were worshiping false gods, for example, a woman God uh, who is like the wife of Yahweh named she's named like a or something something like that um and so they find this like female presence in 
the history, like that's nowhere in the Bible, you know, like Jeremiah is in the Bible. And a lot of religious scholars believe that Jeremiah, well, not Jeremiah, his apprentice, whose name Baruch, um, he's the one who writes down a lot of what we consider to be the Bible. Uh, that's, that's what a lot of, uh, well, this is like hotly contested, of course, but like a lot, there's, there's like a, almost a hundred years of scholarship to back up the idea that this is around the time that says Abraham, Moses, they all believed in only one God because like before that, all of this stuff was oral tradition and Jeremiah can look around and see the Sumerians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They're all writing stuff down and you know, what's not happening to their religion. It's not changing every 20 to 50 years in like radical ways because it has continuity from generation to generation because it's written down. So he's like, we need to write down what's going on. And it, it, he writes it down through his lens of like, there is one God and it's an invisible God and there's no idols and on and on and on. And that's where we get like the Abrahamic monotheistic tradition. But there, there are all of these other stories about there's a female presence and they turn that female presence into wisdom. And if you remember in the chapter five, the Galavespian talks about like, I have a spy who's the Lady Salmachia, who is posing as wisdom in a forbidden ritual being uh, summoned by this guy in the magisterium, right? Mm-hmm. He lives in, she lives in the bookcase. Right. And, <laughs> and people used to actually do this. They would summon wisdom who is trying to like save the world from her, her evil child who created our material universe and ask her questions about like how do we get out of this situation? Oh, so so wisdom is the other god, the like right, the female <sighs> version of god. And and the good version of god, like and she like actually comes from god. The problem that why all this got caused by her, I'm doing such a terrible job of explaining this. The is she like tries to do what God did and like think a thought and create something, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't go well because she is, well, for one thing, she's a woman. And then for the other thing, she's not using like a partner. So like she didn't ask permission of her husband. She has a husband and, uh, she, so she just has this baby and it's like deformed. And the way that it is deformed is that it is made of material matter. And so she flings it out of the mind of God out into the nothing of the rest of the universe. And so it believes, Hey, I'm the only one here and I'm made of stuff. I must be God. And, and so like it starts to try and make its own kingdom and universe. And that's the world that we live in. And then it stole some of the light from God and some of the consciousness, some of the dust, if you will. And, created people with it. When it when he creates Adam, wisdom is like I got to stop this. In the same way that like in Paradise Lost, Lucifer is like I got to stop this. Adam and Eve think this is bullshit. So she inserts her presence into Adam and fuses with Adam. And then immediately the evil god is like, "Oh no. 
I've messed up. Like this thing is more powerful than I am. It could destroy me if it knew how powerful it was. I must keep it ignorant and I must weaken it. So the way I'm going to weaken it is by making it go to sleep and I'm going to cut the female part out of it. And I'm going to create a separate person with that. And this is Eve. This is where Eve comes from. And she is like the embodiment of wisdom. But this backfires on him because wisdom is able then to like talk to Adam and get him to use his logic and reason. (laughs) I think it's interesting that Pullman created a universe where everybody is one being that is two genders and, but is embodied in two different bodies. And that's exactly what the Gnostics did too, that we are all male and female and that the work of being a Gnostic is to regain your relationship with wisdom in the form of like the opposite gender from you. I just wanted to get down in the myth that wisdom was inside of Adam, that Adam was more powerful than God, and that this is a very important thing that God is trying to keep us humans ignorant of, that we are more powerful than God is. Because God is, you know, this malformed God is essentially matter, but we are essentially spirit. And because of that, that makes us more powerful than God. What's interesting to me is how that is flipped around in Pullman's world. And what's good is that we are in bodies. And and what makes them weaker than us is that they don't have bodies. So he's like flipped it 180 degrees and like done it on purpose is what I'm saying, you know, from like the way that C.S. Lewis saw things, for for example, um, who said, you don't, you're not a, a body who has a soul, you're a soul who has a body. That's a famous thing that he said. That is super fascinating, though. And I didn't know any of this. So I'm, I'm really glad that you kind of explained at least a quick and dirty version. I also enjoy how, like, even in all these different setups, there's still, like, for example, the female god couldn't create on her own, but the male god could. Yeah. When, like evidence would yeah it's exactly the opposite opposite. yes yeah yep that's actually something that i did want to point out part of the point of this whole thing is like you can't know the real truth about god unless you can read and you can't really like be on the inside of like the whole getting to heaven thing if you're a woman and you can't, and if you're a Jew, forget about it because you people like ruined everything. It's like a very shitty exclusive club of intellectuals who made this interesting cul-de-sac of Christianity in, in the first 200 years. That It's like potent. I'm going to say Francis and I don't know anything about shitty exclusive intellectuals. <laughs> <laughs> So, like, I don't want to romanticize them. And so I'm glad, Caitlin, that you reminded me that um, there's lots of shitty stuff baked into it. Because you can study Gnosticism and be like, wow, there's all kinds of women in here. And, like, the place of women is very different. Like, there's a whole gospel of Mary. But, like, when you actually dig into it, it's all pretty regressive and bad uh, and not, like, empowering or equal. So, like, I don't want to romanticize Gnosticism or be like... If you like his dark materials, you, maybe you want to be a Gnostic. Like, maybe don't. He's just... 
doing interesting things in dialogue with it and had like some parallel structure accidentally to it. This other thing that I wanted to talk about was that Will uses the knife here in a way that we get a lot more uh, understanding about like we had this whole thing when we read the other book about like how does topology work when you're cutting through the worlds? This kind of like reckons with that. I feel like Philip Pullman got like a lot of fan letters. I think he just listened <laughs> to our podcast and uh, in be- oh, in the past, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cause and effect. In between writing these books, and it's like, but how does he know? How does the ground meet up? And blah 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 blah. And maybe he was like, I guess I will put in a paragraph, right? Yeah. Just for Francis. <laughs> I thought I was the one who complained yeah. about it. I don't remember. We both did. Um, I, I did actually have also written down here very quickly that I it it does feel very kind of post hoc reasoning. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh shit, yeah, I probably should have talked about that. Um, I guess it works like this because fuck you. Yeah, because <laughs> otherwise, how is he going to know what world he's cutting into at any given time? Yeah, yeah and therefore exactly do it intentionally. Yeah, because it has to be a choice for it to be part of the drama he can't like if he's doing it on accident all the time that's going to feel arbitrary and not dramatic and so it causes a narrative problem so i think that this little piece of world building like functions correctly for the narrative but it also fits in with what lyra was doing with the alethiometer where she's feeling the meaning like literally she has a feeling about it and this hooks back into something i talked about with uh, in the first book where Lyra has a census divinitis, which is an idea that uh, Calvin had, who in Lyra's world was the last pope of the magisterium. And then he changed the structure of, uh, of the church. In our world, Calvin is uh, the one who came up with like reformed Christianity. So this is, not only is it not Catholic, but it also like takes uh, the ideas of Martin Luther and says, uh, too much fun there, uh, should be less fun. Calvin's idea of the census divinitis is that we have our five senses to us, right? We have more than five senses, but you know what I'm talking about, where we can see and hear and taste and touch. And he says, there's another sense. We can know within ourselves that God exists. And we have like a connection to the divine essence through our soul that has nothing to do with our body. So like we could be born in a way where we can't see or can't hear, but no one can be born because this is not tied to your material body in a way where you can't sense God. Um, so we all have a census divinitis within us. I disagree with that. Oh, I lots don't think of I people was born with it. <laughs> disagree with this weird idea that he has. But I, I do think that what Will is describing is definitely sensory and embodied, right? Like he's talking about like, this one feels elastic, this one feels smooth, this one, you know what I'm saying? And I think that that is intentional. Now, I don't, I'm not claiming that Philip Pullman is like, census divinitis and Calvin. Uh, there's a lot of Calvinism in this book, actually. And I probably should have been talking about it more in the second book, but um, I didn't remember how much uh, there is in this book. This story is not just about Catholicism in the way that I had been thinking it was for the past book. There's a lot of like Protestant 
thinking going on here. And I think that in exactly the way that you're saying, like Will's whole thing about this internal sense is an inversion of what Calvin is claiming because he's like, he's doing some kind of like weird rhetorical magic trick to get out of having to be logical and rational, right? He doesn't want to deal with it. And so he's just saying, nope, this is a basic claim. And in Pullman's world, what is going on internally in the characters does matter and is real. Like even when it's not correct, if you remember like Will's mother and how like, oh, the people are after us, they're watching us in the grocery store for her, that's real. And Will has to treat it that way to give her like all of her dignity and protect her. But it's not like actually real. There's like this extra step that Calvin's not taking to like verify reality. Right. He's like, no, I have this basic claim. The end. Uh, Like, I feel like God is real. No debate. And Will is like, I have this basic belief, but also here is like logical proof that can be confirmed by third parties. The whole way I feel like Pullman has been like, here is an irrational system and here is a rational system side by side. And it's better if we use both of these things the correct way and not like, don't be part of this false binary. These are the two big things that I saw Gnosticism and, uh, and the census divinitis showing up with the knife. It seems like an extrasensory organ for Will. I think that's kind of accurate. Yeah. Well, I just have one other quick religion note, which is, do you think that Pullman made gay angels just as like an extra little fuck you (laughs) to religion? Gay angels. Gay angels, yes. yes. Well, because like, we do know that female angels do exist. It's not just that like, all angels are male or like all angels are sexless and we're incorrectly perceiving them as male or whatever, like... He goes out of his way to to indicate that, like, I guess angels do somehow have gender. Mm-hmm. Does he? Well, they follow a woman, they say. Yeah. Um, they at least have gendered pronouns. And He asks him. He says, Baruch are you a man? used to be a man. I guess right. Balthaz- uh, Balthamos was not a no, human before. He says he's not. Um, the other thing I find interesting is um, Baruch implies that oh, I believe he implies that he was essentially kicked out or killed by his brother who was Enoch um, for being gay gay yeah oh I didn't notice that I'm gonna have to go back and I have never it. put that together now that you say that it makes sense especially for the time period this was written in but I have yeah. just never put that together before I just thought Enoch was an ass that, I mean, you. yeah, Enoch wasn't asked. Yeah, like, but like, <laughs> y- yes, you know what I'm yes. saying. Yeah. And then I guess the other kind of random comment that I had was just that I thought it was really cool. I think it was the first chapter where Ama's demon and the golden monkey kind of like commune together and have a way of communicating that's beyond language. I mean, I guess we've known that demons can communicate emotions and like feelings in a way to each other i feel like this is the first time we're having them like communicate actual information that would be verbally encoded normally in like a non-verbal way i mean we've seen demons go off and talk together before but 
it, they were demons that had spoke the same language. Right. Yeah. So this is the first time it's like I think explicitly nonverbal demon yeah. communication. Um, one thing that I did enjoy about Alma that I think uh, contrasts a later scene is when she went to go see the medicine man dude, and he was nice and helpful mm-hmm. and didn't berate her like you know he did in a little bit of a friendly way for the lying that she was doing Mm -hmm. he he was like he seemed like a good person Mm -hmm. that doesn't always happen with young people getting trying to get some help from our religious people in this story i liked too that he was like no i will not teach you magic uh (laughs) because like that's (laughs) that's very real and responsible like as opposed to the magisterium people who are like Oh, you ask about religion? Let me stuff your head with all kinds of stuff now that you've asked me to. He's like, no, you're not ready for that. I mean, it's responsible, but it's also realistic. Like, you can hand somebody medicine. You can't teach them magic in, like, 15 minutes. Well, I wanted to say, related to that, we find out in that scene that the guy has a bat demon, and then later... Uh, the monkey takes a bat and pulls it apart. And I was like, I wonder if that's that dude's bat demon. Like he followed her to the cave to see what's up and see who she's really given this medicine to. So he's like being responsible. And the monkey's like, I see what you are and I'll kill you. Uh, there's no evidence for that. But I that's don't what... think so. Most demons can't go that far from their human, except for the monkey. No, no. The monkey can't go that. F- that's a TV show thing. No, oh. not the monkey. The the mm-hmm. the bat. Witches witches demons can't go far from or can go far. Right. In the TV show, the monkey can go far. Right. But not in the books. I forgot that that was just. But the bat is the one going far because he's a shaman, and in the second book, Grumman's uh, osprey oh, goes true. really far away from him. So it's, there's no evidence for this, and there's no way to know one way or the other. But I was like. And it's probably just a bat. But also, I was like, I think the second time I was rereading it, I was like, oh, I wonder if he's literally committing murder and not just like, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty bad to torture an animal. Yeah. But like, is it, is that dude like in back in the town and like his legs and arms are just snapping as he's like pulling the bat apart? You know what I mean? Like, uh. yeah, I was like, oh, no, this poor guy. I think it's just to show that uh, Mrs. Coulter's inner nature is currently restless and angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, even though she is <laughs> choosing chocolate. to be where she is. Well, and also, <laughs> to me, it makes her like turning into her more like maternal nurturing side less weird. I buy it more because it's like mm-hmm. she is making this choice, but it's not that her fundamental nature has changed and that she's trying really hard to be like a nurturing mom to Lyra in her own fucked up way but the her demon almost has to like overcompensate by becoming even more sadistic and cruel Mm -hmm. I think that's the point of a lot of this Ama stuff is for us to look at what's going on with Coulter and to like understand where she's at right now a little bit better. I love that she eats chocolate while the monkey's doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's just like staring off. Um, speaking of Lyra's shitty parents, uh, her other one, 
I I just I'm probably gonna bring this up a lot during this book, but I love how he's just like, I will have my army, I will have my war. My daughter doesn't matter at all. Why do people <laughs> think she's so important? She is stupid. <laughs> like we got his literal thoughts about her being like, she's unimportant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stella Maria's like, what do we know? About, let's let's get logical. What do we know about her? What what can she do? And he's like, not much. She's pretty worthless. (laughs) Jesus. Quickly, I saw, and I don't know if it's particularly important. I'm probably reading way too much into it. But I did notice that the Galavespians, um, so when Lord Roke was talking about his spy talking to the uh, priest in his sleep, um, he actually uses the phrase their sleep, describing the sleep of the, the human and the demon which kind of implies that the Galavespians perceive the demon and the human to be separate entities rather than being the same entity. I'm not sure if that's intentional. Probably isn't. Probably doesn't mean anything, but I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, I don't remember if anybody within, if we ever see anyone within Lyra's world do that or not. Hmm. It's Yeah, it is person and their demon. It's weird. Yeah, sometimes they say you and your demon or that sort of thing, but I don't remember any instance of them saying like, Oh yeah, she is over there, and and not there over there. Like I just don't yeah. remember if they've said it or not. I don't think they did. Um, my weird thing that I noticed only because I was watching Prince Caspian the other night is the Galavespians are very similar to the mice in oh. in Prince Caspian with their small nature and therefore their extreme pride. Mm-hmm. Reaper cheap, yeah. Yeah, reaper cheap. I love reaper cheap. Me too. He's the best. Um, <laughs> yeah, that I don't know. I highly doubt that was on purpose. I think it's just a problematic thing that we like we were talking about earlier. <laughs> yeah. Something so yeah. small has to have extreme pride so that they can be just as big as everyone else. Of course. I did also just find it funny looking at the actual word Galavespian. I'm not sure about the galley part. I feel that there's a reference there that I'm missing. But Vespian is from the Latin word Vesper, um, meaning wasp. So they are huh. small things with a nasty sting. Yeah. Hmm. That's not the ancient Latin word for motorcycle. <laughs> for annoying one-stroke moped, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I don't know about the galley bit. I I would like to know. I, w- I wonder if it's. Hmm. I feel like there's a kind of Gulliver's King, Gulliver's like travels thing. That's what I thought. Or like, but galley. Ah, uh, if I, it's tip of my um, metaphorical tongue. I can't think of what it is. Oh, but those are the Lilliputians, the little people. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I didn't like the Galavespians the first time. I reread this and now I've gone through the book a couple more times and I really like them. I agree. I bounced off of them the first time that I read it. It just felt like weirdly world breaking in a way like yeah. Like everything else is a little bit almost like magical realism and the Galavespians I feel like kind of catapult us from magical realism into like intense fantasy (laughs) that's just book three though yeah Yeah. maybe like yeah the first two books are very magical realism 
Uh, but then suddenly in book three, you know, we're jumping through so many worlds. We've got the Galavespians. We've got the... Um, Mulefa. The Mulefa. And, and, you know, the whole world of the dead thing. Mm-hmm. Spoilers. I don't know, whatever. Well, we've already um, seen it. It's in those interstitials. Oh, that's true. That's true. I just think that that's... Book three does feel very different than the first two books. It's it's because uh, Pullman learned about Gnosticism and it just changed everything. <laughs> Yeah. And also had two books worth of experience in writing and so got better at it. Yeah. I mean, no, he had books that he published before this. Like that is true. He had four? Five books. Sorry, two books more experience. Yes. Is that better? Much better. <laughs> yes, thank you. But it, I, I like them. I think I bounced off them because of the whole arrogance thing and they just seem like a bunch of jerks. But then when you get to know them, they have like a heart of gold. Yeah, I like them when they're with Lyra and Will. Yeah. Okay, well, that wraps up our conversation for today. Join us next time. We'll be talking about chapters 6 through 10. If you like our show, please take the time to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at Francis Windrum. Follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod. Need more than 280 characters to speak your mind? Send your emails to contact at hollowedgroundmedia.com. And remember to always test out your mystical, magical, world-jumping knife weeks after you first got it. Will asks what happens when people die, and the angels tell him that there is a there bloody hell. This is long. <laughs> Did you forget the type of quote unquote summaries on your rights? Shall I just read the book? <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's only two pages in Google Docs. Okay. <laughs> Single okay. spaced in eleven <laughs> font. <laughs> There's a lot of important plotty stuff going on, and I'm assuming that some people are probably reading this without, um, you know, listening to this without reading. Yeah, Yeah, listening to this without reading. Whoever is is editing this, I am sorry. This just means we have lots of good outtake fuel of Francis fucking up over and over again. Fuck you. Sorry for writing so much. It just all seemed really important, okay? And now we have to talk about it all. This is going to be the shortest podcast ever between the four of us. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Right. (laughs) It's funny. In China, um, the tradition of Christians there is that they, all three of them are Chinese. uh, Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. They're like, yeah, this is our part. We were, we gave them all that stuff. I mean, we started Christmas. All he does is whine about murder. Sorry, Uh, did we get everybody's favorite part? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think we did. And so now you're starting us off on least favorite part. Yeah. I I already started us off on least favorite parts. Okay. I'm so confused. See, and so did I.
I've been playing so much Hades lately. Now in my head, I just have a crossover where Tisiphone follows Will around yelling murder. <laughs> oh, that would be good. <laughs> murder! He would love that. I mean, it's better than if it was the other way around. If uh, if his father says, don't be going doing that killing then. And he goes, oh, but I love killing. Killing's my favorite <laughs> thing. I just go, go on my, my day, kill, have some breakfast, do a little bit more killing. It's great. And then that's his whole like character for the rest of the thing. My be... favorite type of 12-year-old. <laughs> the murdering The only ones. sort of 12-year-old. We've already established you should be starting at four. All right, of course. Yeah. On your way to work. Hi. In the mines. In the mines. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I do feel like we're doing a bad job of only talking about these five chapters. Yeah. <laughs> but that's fine. Here be spoilers. Very vaguely encoded spoilers. Like, still pretty imperialist in this whole collecty other people's stuffy sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Wow, that was words. Sorry. Uh, It'd be funny if you just like, see the, the particles of sugar just falling right back out drop. of him. You know, yeah. Like, <laughs> like they get chewed up and you can see he has like a mouth and then just blowing out of the back end of his head is like the sugar is just blowing away. Like Slimer. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I would contend Caitlin, it's not do you per se religious as your personal lord and savior. <laughs> no. <laughs> See, the answer's still no. Yeah. It just yeah, makes so me think... think of uh Jewish blessings. That's what Baruch is. Yeah. It, yeah. That's the word. <laughs> is it what but you it's say also when you like sneeze? It's a very common name. <laughs> <laughs> no, they all start with Baruch Adonai. That's right. Yeah, the original movie got <clears throat> Blasted right. because of it. From the oh, Catholic really? Church. The it Nicole Kidman one? No, sorry. Before <laughs> it came out, oh, um, it was like they were forced to do a bunch of rewrites by the studio because they didn't want right all the problems. Would it have been good otherwise? I don't think so because <laughs> <laughs> there was other problems uh, with the movie. We still need to do a like drunken podcast about the movie. Damn it. I live in fear of having to relive it. I but... cannot wait to do that. That sounds hilarious. <laughs> I bought the DVD at Goodwill for $3 just so we could do this. <laughs> yeah. That sounds really fascinating, but I don't think I quite understand it just because, like, I think you need to explain more. Yeah, let me uh, take 45 minutes to elaborate. So, um... <laughs> wait, wait, before you do, before you do. <clears throat> yeah. Should agnostic actually be pronounced agnostic? I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, yeah, probably, right? Uh, because oh, I, it is just occurring to me right now that those two things are related. I don't yeah. even. I don't even know. How, yeah, agnostic. I guess. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds Greekish. Agnostic. Um, wrong with it. Yeah, I think you're right, but it's English, so we say everything wrong anyway. Uh, yeah, we do. Yeah, we're <laughs> proud of it. Is that cognate with Yahweh? Uh, no, it's like it's spelled spelled really weird. It's it's made up by them. It's not um by the Gnostics or I'm sorry, it's um divinely received by them. And uh, 
So, are we done? I guess so. I think so, yeah. Um, we did it. 